showing and telling and then breaking it into, okay, what does that story really like look like for our users? Let's write it in plain English. What is the pain in plain English? Like, what are the steps to the bad story? What are the steps to the good story? And then how do we then frame up the good story in product? Jennifer Brisman is an event industry expert who has produced over 600 events throughout her career. She is the founder and CEO of Vow, a technology company committed to transforming the future of events with innovative features such as automated arrival, check-in, seating, real-time event updates, and mind-blowing 24-7 event concierge support. With Jennifer's help, organizers anywhere can delight guests while saving time, money, and stress across their event operations. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jennifer, I am so excited to sit down and chat with you and hear all about your entrepreneurista journey and story. Did you always know that you wanted to own your own business? Absolutely. Absolutely. Since I was like little, I feel like <laughs> I naturally had a problem with authority or doing things, you know, the way anybody else wanted me to do it. I always thought I knew best. And, you know, as time went along, I kind of proved that to myself in small ways. So yeah. What were some of the traits you had growing up that you just knew, you know, this was going to be your path? I always like to start things. I felt like I was, you know, always a catalyst for the bike club. You know, we used to hit the bike path or, you know, an activity that I wanted to do at the home with my young friends. I was always building something, creating something, wanting to lead something that went on into high school. So whether it was championing a fundraiser or a fashion show, kind of was always out in front. And then certainly once I got to college, even I was always like searching out different places and ways to kind of execute on leadership. So I got involved in some different groups, even in, in college, where I got to like chart my own path and kind of lead a group at large. So I, I feel like it was just like always in my blood, in my DNA. Did you work for another company after graduating from college or did you jump right in and start a business? I did. I did. I was actually pre-med. And so I was taking all the major sciences, but extracurricularly, I was running a group of pre-med students. We were doing all these uh, extracurricular activities and I was planning and organizing. And one of the things that I was organizing was a fundraiser in Washington, D.C. And I went to a real event planner who had a really big company. And I had heard of her name in different, in different circles. And I went to her and I said, I really need help. I'm doing this fundraiser. I want it to go well. And I was excited to sit down with her and tell her all the different things that I wanted to do. And she said, you know what, if you ever want to come work for me out of college, whatnot, you know, definitely, definitely look me up. So yes, 
I went to her initially, I believe, as an intern, and then I would get gainful employment with her for about a year right in Washington, D.C., and we did some incredible events. I worked on the Greater Washington Exploratory Committee for the 2012 Olympic Games, and I worked on the Princess Diana Dress Tour. And that was pretty much it. Being pre-med was obviously done. (laughs) And then I was off and running. So yeah. When did you start your first business? Shortly thereafter. So I worked for three different production companies across, I think, like two, two and a half years in typical me format on the heels of your first question, which was, you know, how did you know you want to be an entrepreneur? I just, you know, couldn't shake that sense of I can do these things better I want to be the master of my own domain and my own future. I don't, you know, want to be working for other people. I want to have other people working for me. So shortly into working formally and officially and on salary for others, I kind of had that sensibility still, but I thought it was really important to learn. And I thought it was really important to be mentored and very important to keep my eyes and ears to the ground and get a sense of the entirety of the space. I worked for different types of event production companies and those different types of companies produce different types of events. So I tried to soak up as much as I could in each of those landscapes and then ultimately decided to go out on my on my own and and did just that. You know, to be to be fair, I also, you know, was at a place in life I was very very young. Life wasn't as expensive as it was now. I happened to at that point in time be coupled up with someone so we we were like a two household income if you will. And so I think at that time in life you know, it was a comfortable decision to make to go out onto my own. And it's, you know, obviously in stark contrast to what other women deal with today, which when they're doing that, there could be much more financial implications if you don't have support from your family or support from a significant other. So yeah, it was 2001 and I went out on my own. That is so exciting. And thank you for sharing your background and, you know, that tidbit about how it can be even more challenging now for for women yeah. who are starting businesses who don't have that that support system. Yeah. You know, you had been in business for many years before starting your your new business, Vow. Can you share more about your current business and maybe some of the learning lessons that you were able to take from your first business that you brought to this new business? Oh my God. Yeah. So as in my past life, I was a traditional event producer. In my current life, I am working with 12 million of my colleagues globally, vendors, venues, organizers, clients. My first life taught me that it's all about people, the people that you trust and the people that you service. And that is absolutely my value system every day with Vow. Vow is a technology company dedicated to live events. And every single day, My commitments to my team are to ensure that they have the best talent and are well capitalized and have the best resources to do their jobs. But my job for my customers is to be exactly where they need me to be, to understand their pain, to make sure that they know we prioritize them because live events are still 
incredibly dependent upon people, well more than technology. Mm. So human capital is vital to the event ecosystem. There's no getting away from that. Very much in stark contrast to other ecosystems that have become unbelievably digitized with, you know, true, true displacement, if you will, of humans by technology. And we as an ecosystem are the exact opposite. Our technology, when done right, helps us scale ourselves and helps us scale our events and helps us scale economic resources. But it, it it's very hard to take the place of humans today for the majority of the functionality that we do. And obviously everything is centered around live experiences, which is the fabric of our lives where everybody comes together. So my focus then for 20 years and my focus now is people. It's also Vow's focus. So Vow's focus as a technology company is on management of guest experiences, elevating guest experiences. As a planner, that's all I did. Everything that we did was pointed out, how do we elevate the guest experience? Mm -hmm. From the time someone leaves their home to the time they leave that event, how do we optimize that experience for them and make it everything it needs to be? That's what we're doing with Val. When did you have the idea to start Val? 2004. <laughs> it wasn't called Val. I wanted to really systematize a lot of the day-to-day functions that I was doing so that I could scale my own business, right? Because to make more money, you have to be able to do more. If to do more, you have to wrangle more human capital very, very tough. So I was a solopreneur. I really wanted to figure out how do I scale myself? So I really looked at like my own personal workflows and said, like, how do I scale my own workflows? How do I do more? How do I book more business? How do I manage more business on my own? So I actually tried to build a little bit of technology to do that in 2004. And I was way out of my league. The industry wasn't ready yet. There wasn't a lot of the mainstream technology kind of widely used that we have today, whether Google Sheets or Google Docs or Dropbox or email the way that we use it today, you know, centralized communications platforms like Slack. We didn't have any of that eBay wasn't what it was today. Google wasn't what it is today. Amazon, what you know, so I was way out of my league. So I just honed my craft. I came back to the idea of tech in 2018. So in 2018, I was still planning and producing, but I spent a lot of time immersing myself in the startup ecosystem, learning the vernacular, learning the key players, really trying to understand, okay, how do I take, you know, 20 years of experience and how do I finally help people scale, scale experiences, scale themselves, and really take time and money back and reduce stress, operational stress and staffing stress. So the kind of value prop was the same. So it took me a little while to learn the landscape. Then I had to learn tech and I had to sort of learn to wrangle technology. And then I had to learn how to build fast, ship fast, you know, create a real feedback loop to break things and learn and gain confidence. And again, I leaned into people. 
I leaned into relationships to get to people who had experience in the space, who kind of heard the vision, felt like I was ambitious enough and crazy enough that I could maybe make this happen. And their belief in me kind of superpowered me, gave me like a real sense of confidence and an unspoken resume. And I was able to move from there. You know, you shared that doing a lot of research and learning ahead of time before diving in and building was what helped you get to where you are today. And really one of the reasons we started our community, the Entrepreneurs League, was just that, to give everyone all of these tools and resources and connections. I'm curious, going back to 2018, when you were trying to figure out, you know, who do you connect with? Who do you talk to? How do you learn the lingo and learn how to build tech? What resources did you seek out then and any learning lessons from that experience? Yeah. So (laughs) I was at a phase in life where I was like, this is what I'm doing and I'm not breaking focus. And I remember being home in my pajamas. Everybody knew was like out in the world. And a bunch of my friends were actually together at a house nearby, kind of enjoying partying, you know, having a few uh, glasses of wine. And they called and they said, you need to come. And I said, I'm not, I'm not coming. I'm working on stuff. I'm learning, I'm reading. And they said, you need to come. So finally, a friend of mine said, look, there's another startup founder here. (laughs) He's raised capital and he has promised that if you come, he will sit with you. You can pitch him. And we did. And we sat. And for two hours, he literally talked me through. He was so generous with his time. I was about a a half a block up the street. And he talked me through every single thing that I needed to know this wonderful gentleman named Tom Cherniak. And from there, I had some resources and I met with him and I spoke to him. And ultimately, I got in touch with a startup pitch night. And I was like, I'm just going to go pitch. And I worked with a designer. We built a deck. I think there were 18 of us in two rooms, maybe like nine and nine. And I went and I pitched and I came in second. And I was like, this is amazing. And tomorrow I'm going to build tech and raise capital. (laughs) And like, you know, you're just like drunk on the excitement. Yeah. And so I think that excitement carried me a lot. I don't, had I not done that, I don't know if I would have, you know, been as like confident, but I was. And then I was kind of, uh, I was off and running from there. Were you still running your event production business at the same time as starting this? No, no, just using bootstrapped capital and just kind of flying, flying from there as long as I could. Can you share some learning lessons from creating your MVP product, building this technology platform? Because a lot of our entrepreneurs, and you'll see in Entrepreneurs League, many of them are starting to develop tech platforms and are sharing they're looking for developers and coders and people to partner with and work with and having, you know, launched a a new product. I know there's a lot of learning lessons to share. So any tips and feedback would definitely be helpful. So I think I missed one critical step in my journey. So one of the smartest things that I did was I joined an entity called Betaworks Studios, downtown in meatpacking. It was a private tech cohort or a private tech workspace that had a kind of cohort feel. They ran amazing events. They brought in domain experts in technology, domain experts in fundraising, in product market fit and marketing. So they bring in people from Airbnb or the skim, you know, or, or other platforms and you could interact with them and you could meet with them. And, you know, you felt like you belong somewhere 
And they had so much exposure to so much great content. You know, if you spend time there, you became like a sponge. I truly credit them for helping me get my kind of engineering and tech sea legs. But it was very, very hard to understand engineering in 2019. It's fast forward today. There's so many more resources. I mean, there's incubators and accelerators and tech cohorts and workspaces, and they're all fighting for the attention of that same entrepreneur. And so they have incredible resources, right? So you can meet tech people anywhere and everywhere. But I think the first thing that I would say is to be really, really clear about what you want to build. And if you can generate some type of proof of concept without spending true hard engineering dollars on technical capital, do it. So if you can generate a proof of concept in a low lift way, using some low lift technologies that are out there to get as close as possible to what you have or what you want, absolutely do it. If you can find an engineer to build you something in a low lift way, do it. The best way to do that is to ask other women. So take, you know, find ecosystems where there's other women who have built something. They don't have to be a founder. They don't have to have raised capital, but they've built something and they've done so successfully. Say, how did you do it? And who did you trust? And then the third thing is, Within that vision, if you can point to things in the universe, not so much imagery or colors or the pretty and the paint and the makeup, but if you can point to things in the universe that kind of give a flavor of what you're looking to build and why, what's the business reason that you're building what you're building, that's important. So talking to other people you know, thinking about a proof of concept that doesn't require technical capital and engineering dollars, and then really having kind of a laundry list of things that you can point to, to shorten the distance for someone. I know with me, I felt like I needed an engineer. I think today, a highly seasoned product person, someone in product, someone who understands technical architecture and language, but who knows how to wrangle the front side, what you see and what you feel as a user, that's absolutely the best way to go because those people, if they have experience, will know kind of what it means to look like and feel like and how to communicate with an engineer for you. So I'd almost say like if I had to do it all over, I would have gone to an experienced uh, product designer, a technical product designer more than anything else. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Jennifer, I would love to hear how long did it take to build the first version of your product? And when did you officially launch and go to market? So there were a couple of different products. (laughs) We started sort of in one direction and the industry was like moving so fast. Events were exploding And we realized that there was some new exciting pain happening, but we ultimately launched our first real product in May of 2021. We had built it in March amidst the pandemic, but events really hadn't kicked in yet. So we really had some of our first customers, I believe in mid-April and early May, 
and we were off and running and, you know, events have really strong network effects. The network effect is really one to many, many, many. And in the ecosystem we work, which is private high-end events, the network effects carried us really far, really fast. So we really did no marketing when we began Vow, and we've really not done any marketing since. We stay really connected to our customers, really connected to the pain, and we make sure you know every interaction on the platform is the best it can be because the people coming onto our platform are essentially all potential clients, right? That's how we look at it. So that's kind of how we've framed up the beginning of the journey. How did you get your first customers when you launched? So our wedge, our actual wedge into the market was that we built a feature within our app, within our guest experience app called Digital Health. And Digital Health COVID cleared at scale. There was a huge demand for it. When I went out to build it, everybody outside the ecosystem told me I was crazy. Everybody in our business who I showed it to was like, build that. That is what we need. So we chose to take the risk in a world where anybody touching events was moving fast and furiously towards virtual events. We took a risk on building a platform to help live events safely gather at scale. And we did it. So we were kind of a little bit of this lone ranger, if you will. And so because we were kind of this lone ranger, a little bit in our own market, in our own vertical, within the vertical, customers really came to us. But we created a real cohort when we started of friends and fans across a number of different large, large event organizers who I really didn't know when we started the journey. They knew Val. They knew we were kind of for pros, by pros and building for the ecosystem. So, and they had a spidey sense of what we were building and maybe not exactly understanding whether or not they would ultimately come to need the product. I mean, I think every corner, everybody thought, okay, the pandemic's done now, the pandemic's done now. But we we built this little wedge in the market. We would very quickly build a ton of other features onto it, specifically for events, not for not for COVID. But that was our wedge into the market. So we really garnered some very, very early, you know, truck traction and trust, really based on timing, just right product, right founding team, right timing at that point. So we we were lucky and we very quickly used that opportunity to learn and understand and be where our customers were and get a spidey sense of what was next. We went on site. So my team and I, whoever was based in New York, we went on site. We went on site to events in Florida, Chicago, LA, anywhere we could go on site so we could see the interaction of people and product and really understand like with our own eyes as as domain experts uh, my colleagues and I specifically me like oh my god why is that happening with so many people like with such high frequency like there's so much pain right there and so as events came back at scale as we built this little wedge we quickly quickly trailblazed into the market really comprehended what their next sort of pain points were and very quickly built to those next pain points. And that's what we continue to do for our customers. How big is your team now? We are about 10 across, I'd say three countries. So yeah. 
growing, growing quickly for sure. Yeah. When you mentioned that you had to build quickly and pivot quickly and do things based on hearing what was working, what was not working, how do you go about communicating that information to your team and, you know, give them that encouragement to, you know, keep going and move quickly? (laughs) You do it in the moment. You do it in the moment. Listen, customers tell you what they want and like customers would literally like be like, they would see us with a vow t-shirt. And they'll be like, they want to tell you they love your product. They want to tell you what's wrong with it. They want to get in your face about it. So we were there to be assaulted (laughs) when they did. I would literally be like, in the moment, this is what's happening. This is what the customers need. And I would like fire it off to my engineers. At the time, I didn't have a head of product. I was really serving as head of product. We, We do now. We have someone pretty slick and powerful. And and so he runs with that now, but how do we communicate it? I believe in showing and telling. So we would try to take that video and we would say, this is what's going on. This is the next pain. This is what we need to solve for. And so kind of show the in real life business model of what's happening and what we need to solve for. And there's nothing better than that kind of picture. And the nice thing about events is they are the fabric of our lives. So whether it's you're going to a fintech meetup, whether you're going to a banking event, a summit, a conference, a gala, a fundraiser, a red carpet experience, a celebration, a wedding, an education, continuing education course, a pharmaceutical conference, an exhibition, trade show, we've all been there. In in any country, You everyone's been to an event. So there are certain pain points that we all share when we're moving through the journey from when we leave our home to when we go on site to when we depart. It's it's like getting on an airplane. I don't care if you're going on Lufthansa or you're going on Delta or you're taking flying private. Like the same pain exists from the time you leave your home to the time you get to your destination to the time you return home. So um, showing and telling and then breaking it into okay, what does that story really like look like for our users? Let's write it in plain English. What is the pain in plain English? Like, what are the steps to the bad story? What are the steps to the good story? And then how do we then frame up the good story in product? We then have to build frames for it. And then you have to look at it and go, can we fit this into our architecture or not? Like, can we make this happen with what we have? Like for us, like when we built the ability to have parents add profiles, accounts for their children, it's a lift. It's a really big lift. It's a lift architecture. It's a lift in the database. It's a lift from data privacy and security. It's a lift to make sure that parents understand that they're adding accounts for their children, where they find them. So you then have to break it into parts. And then hopefully you have good product people or engineers who say, okay, guys, what's the smallest thing that we can build to get that thing up and running quickly? The bigger it is, the more likely it is you'll have a big failure. The smaller it is, the more likelihood it is that it will be successful. And I always want to build the biggest things. (laughs) So I get unbelievable pushback from my team is like, nope, we're not doing that, but here's what we can give you. And then we try to meet somewhere in the middle. Usually they, it's kind of like four fifths them, me. So that's, that's kind of how we roll. Is your team all remote? Yes. One of our, we have a near shore engineering team 
We have engineers and product people here in the United States in different countries. My head of sales and business development is here in New York. I'm in New York. So we're kind of in diaspora. Any advice you can share about managing a remote workforce, any tools or business solutions that you're using that that help? Yeah. So because I really started in 2018, late 2018, but before that as an event pro, I was on Zoom all the time. I don't remember a day where I wasn't on Zoom or Skype. So I think the first thing is for me, it was already a normal way of working. Second of all, I happen to love video. So I hate black screens and I despise phone calls because I'm really animated and I like people to see that animation. So I find normal phone calls really, really uncomfortable. I will call people on FaceTime all the time and they will hang up on me. I'll be like, I'm happy to talk to you, but I don't want to FaceTime with you. You sound like me. All the time. I had a regular phone call recently and it was like so uncomfortable because I'm used to being able to talk to people and see people and you just can't gauge expressions or what people are thinking. So I'm with you. (laughs) No, I want to look people in eyes. So it never felt odd to me. And so one of my engineers early on said, before I came to work at Vow, I despised video calls. Now I absolutely love them because the team doesn't, blacken out their screen. And we have very few customers that do, by the way, as well, like very few customers ever black out their screen with us. And I don't know if that's because we are touching the live event space. I don't know if it's because they're excited to get on and and learn of or hear of a new product, but Zoom has been, and and all the video chat platforms. So on Slack, sometimes we're on Slack huddle if people send us a team link. But I really appreciate what it's done for us, for the business, for me. It makes me feel closer and tighter and more connected to everybody. So I think as far as being a cross-culture or cross-time zone team, I think you have to first get people excited about relating to one another on video. There's only so much you can do on like, you know, Slack or Mattermost and video and chat platforms. I think you have to get excited about working together remotely and want to connect and make eye contact and be animated and trust and be trusted by other team members. And I think from there, anything falls into line. We really just use Zoom, Slack, Slack huddle. We don't have any magic around that. And that's kind of how we we communicate. We have a lot of stand-ups and we believe actually in a lot of talk time. So we we structure our talk time almost like in chunks and then everybody goes heads down. And then we structure our talk time in terms of chunks. But what I do with my sales and ops team, super, super different than kind of the way that the product and engineering team communicate. And then the other thing I would say about it is, you have to like hire for what you need. So if you need people that are interactive and emoted, like hire to that, right? Like I need that. So like right now, the first few engineers that I hired, like I needed people that I could connect with, not just like robots. Like I needed people who like, you know, were granular and had good spidey sense and great chemistry with me. Listen, probably like the, I don't know, fifth engineer we hire, 
if they're reporting to our head of product, maybe, maybe that softens a little bit. But I really like people's connection and intention. So I hire for that. And I really look for that no matter where in the world I'm hiring someone. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. A few more questions for you. I want to hear about your fundraise and fundraising process. I know you mentioned <laughs> you raised an angel round or friends and family round, and now you're going out for a seed raise. Can you share any advice just based on your learnings from raising capital? So I'm not sure what we're doing exactly right now, but as far as my learning curve, it sucks to be rejected. Like it really, really sucks to be rejected. That's number one, I would say. Number two, it's hard to get people's time and attention. Um, I think it's easier, of course, if you've A, had an exit, if two, you're really, really well connected and not starting from scratch, or three, you know, you came out of a, an institution like, you know, Harvard or Stanford or MIT, and it's a hundred times easier if you have a technical background. If you are a non-technical founder <laughs> trying to champion a technology company, yeah, people are going to look at you in disbelief and they're going to want to see some hard traction, some hard numbers. So I think, you know, when you go out to fundraise, you got to be realistic with yourself about what you look like on paper. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be ambitious. It does not mean that you shouldn't think sky's the limit. You just got to know what your Achilles heel and your warts are and you have and your weaknesses on paper and you have to know that you have enough strengths to outbalance those weaknesses so that if you do get that one meeting, you can go. Second thing is you got to take the layups. Um, one of my advisors, Andy Bromberg, who is the past CEO of CoinList and current CEO of Echo, he's just like a super, super genius leader and an amazing mentor. And he really believed in me before anyone else. And he would say to me, like, I, I don't care if you don't know what you're doing. Ask. I don't care if you don't understand. Like, everyone's going to push you around. Everyone is going to use words that you don't understand and let you know how smart they are. Your job is to let people know how smart you are and take the layups and just do it. And Listen, it does take a while. It's no different than learning any skill set, but you actually do get better at it. And one of the reasons I loved him and all of the advisors that we brought on, which were such powerful allies and assets, is they did put me in front of Friendly Fire. So they did put me in front of Friendly Fire, who was going to respect that I was perhaps going to be a great founder great story, possibly a great investment, or just, you know, somebody who contributed really, really smartly and intentionally to the startup ecosystem. And maybe even if I didn't become a venture funded company, would have a successful company that would bring other people into the fold one day. So my advisors really encouraged me to take the layups and you just have to do it when it comes to fundraising. But it's really scary. Very, very rejecting. I feel dumb every single day because I learn something every day. But if you, if you switch gears from the rejection, just to say like, okay, I thought about it as rejection. Now I think about it as that, you know, investor or ally or possible partner did me a favor because they're clearly not the right fit mm -hmm. for me. Early on in the journey, we did get 
a bit of a term sheet early on and the investor ultimately pulled it. Uh, we were a different product then, we'll never be the same product now. But they pulled it and they, I think, also wanted to suggest what we should build. And I think had I taken that capital, I would have felt I was younger. I was, you know, a little bit more novice. I'm not sure I would have taken the path that I did and been as successful as we have been. So I think of it like, you know, those floors closed doors forced other open opportunities. So I'm actually now really grateful for them. So when I do speak with someone and maybe I'm not the right fit for the t- at the time, if I think there's something special about the fund or the person, you know, I'm here to build friends and fans for my company. And, I, and that person could be a customer. That person could be someone I'm sitting next to on a plane tomorrow. That person could be someone who hires my kid one day. That person could be, you know, we all have things to offer each other. So I've really tried to grow from that sense of rejection and kind of reshape it into something else. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And I hope to have the occasion, you know, no matter what my company does to, you know, help others you know, get to the places that they need to go, those spots in life, so they can chart, you know, their course to what's what's right for them. That's such helpful advice. And I, I love those stories that you shared. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. All right, Jennifer, this is might be my favorite segment. We're going to do a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? The first word are words that come to your mind. Okay. How would your friends and family describe you in three words? Um, Vivacious, relentless, and empowering. Coffee or tea? Coffee. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) What business solution has helped you most in your entrepreneurista journey? I think... Slack. Like I don't really know what I would do without it. Um, I would say that and obviously my iPhone. Um, so definitely couldn't agree more. Don't know what we would do without either of those two things. Do you have a hidden talent? I think I'm really good at kind of empowering my kids to keep their heads in whatever they're doing. Um, I think I kind of know how to like get them championing whatever is happening in their lives and to really fly with it and roll with it and stay heads down. I think that's why they're so successful. That may be a talent. I don't know if that's a hidden talent, but um, yeah. And I'm going to ask you more questions about that in just a minute. But finally, our last rapid fire question, is there one skill that you want to learn in the next year? Um, I think I would really love to learn to code I think that, you know, I'm so passionate about what my engineers do and bring to life. I would love to learn to code and or do code review. You know, that would be super fun for me. I I learned early on in the journey how to wireframe and prototype. I'm not amazing at it, but I made my designers teach it to me so that I had some design control to just kind of make simple changes or bust out an ad or a change to my deck. So I'm familiar with like InDesign and and Figma, Zeppelin and a few others. So I, I don't know that that's a skill, but it's it's definitely a skill that helped me move further faster when I had very, very little design resources. 
definitely a good skill to have. All right, back to our regular questions here. So Jennifer, you mentioned before that supporting women is extremely important to you. And we definitely are on the same page with that. It's why we started Entrepreneurista to help as many women in business as we can. Can you share with me a little bit more about what supporting women means to you and what you've done to do so? Sure. Well, I will start off by saying that I think the event industry, while we can always do more and we will do more and we have to do more every day, I can tell you that I felt very supported as a woman, quote, growing up in business by my industry partners, men, women. I think we were always a place for minorities, for people of color, not in the way we need to be and should be and can be. I would hope I feel better than other industries. And I feel that we are quick to adopt new ways of thinking and be more open-minded, challenge each other to be more patient, inclusive, understanding. For me, the social event space was very female-driven at least on my side of the business as an organizer. And so I felt not only supported by women, I supported women. I've probably sort of trained and kind of brought into the fold in the ecosystem, hired, in some cases fired, I would say 40 to 50 women across the way. One of my passion plays was that I sat on the planning committee and or board of New York Women in Communications for about a decade. Um, New York Women in Communications is really one of the most powerful forces for women in communications and new media based in New York City. They plan the annual Matrix Awards. And this was really a big deal for me. It was really a place where I was able to interact and learn from a lot of senior and C-suite women where I was really able to understand and emulate kind of best practices in business. And it's definitely a, a part a relationship from which I drew a lot of confidence and comfort. And so that was really something I dedicated my time to probably about, if I had to guess it, at 100 to 120 hours a year to help champion New York Women in Communications and the Matrix Awards. And again, on the back end, I sat on the board. I think I was the treasurer, the secretary, a VP, and it's still a really powerful, productive organization today. And so if you are a woman in communications, media, PR, marketing, new media, public relations, journalism, print media, and um, you it's a great place. It's a great place to network, to level up your education, to kind of climb the ladder and create resources. So if you're starting off in a major city, certainly in New York, and you're young and you're hungry and you're ambitious, it's a great stepping stone. So, you know, I think, I wish there were more organizations like it. Um, you know, the amazing part of the startup ecosystem has been that as well. I'm part of two female-oriented Cohorts for women in in startups. One is good for her. That's championed by uh, Julie Austin, and that experience and the women in those cohorts. I think uh, there's probably about forty or fifty of us at this point. You know, it's been an amazing journey to be able to have a network of women who've done so much more than me, um, and an amazing leader who creates. You know, who's this catalyst of helping each other, educating each other, safe space to ask questions, get advice, get resources, to kind of hip check each other, uh, to talk about what is going on in the world and you know what our part is to make the startup ecosystem a better place tomorrow. Um, so it's a really 
ambitious, like wildly ambitious group. Like these women are so successful and, you know, a place to share. And really you see the results of it. Like when someone helps you, it's like, you know, an immediate feedback back loop, you see the results when you help someone else, you do it. So Julie Austin brought that group together and it's, it's been a real, you know, source of strength and, and comfort for me. No, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, Courtney and I, as we were growing our agency business, we were in so many different groups over the years to really help get that support and feedback loop that that you mentioned. And again, one of the reasons why we started Entrepreneurista and now we're launching something called Power Group. So similar to what you mentioned to be able to have these smaller cohorts so women can really connect and, and network led by a facilitator because it is so important to have your founder friends and connections who you can easily go to and, and get that immediate feedback and get that help and everyone is, you know, connecting and networking. So I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that because it it really is so important as you're, as you're building. So I have to assume that you are an extremely organized person coming from the event industry and now, you know, running this business. Are there any tips you can share about how you stay organized or different tools that you use? Wow. So I am organized, but I do a lot of channel switching in my business day. When I'm strategizing, I try to really be heads down and have zero noise. I think the first thing is that you have to acknowledge that not everything is a fire. <laughs> like, like we live in such a world of immediacy. Like when I think something's a fire, I absolutely expect my team to think it's a fire <laughs> and like address what I need right away. But you have to step back and you have to go you know, you have to acknowledge that not everything is a fire. So the minute you do that, organization becomes so much easier, right? Because you can't organize anything if you think you have to organize everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the ability to be successful at organizing means different things to different people. For some, it's their space. So like if you're a designer, you work with materials, you need to constantly find materials. Like then that is a physical thing, right? Like a logistical thing. You need to organize your space. For me, I needed to sort of organize my movement around computers. So I have a a huge, huge desktop in front of me. So when I'm looking at designs or marketing materials, I do so on there. When I'm dealing with communications, content, the written word, I'm focused on my main laptop. An iPad, I keep my schedule and SMS notifications. And I have to train myself to say, okay, how do I reduce the noise? So, you know, the first key point to organizing anything, your day, your space, your mind, is to say what matters most, what matters most. And that becomes either to the bottom line or your ability to deliver. So it used to be to the bottom line, right? Like when I was a smaller team, I had to sell. So I had to pay attention to sales inquiries. That's all that mattered. Nothing else mattered, not strategy time. Like that was what mattered for a period of time. And then as I did that and I did that well, I would say, okay, I have to be inclusive of strategy time. That doesn't mean go on social media doesn't mean check my texts, doesn't mean check my email. There's a lot of noise. I put notifications on during the day. So so knowing what matters most, zeroing out the noise and going, you know, what do I need to accomplish? If you have less to accomplish, you don't have to organize so much. But that's really, really hard because when any of us are starting something, we're wearing multiple hats. 
So for me to organize my day when I was wearing more hats, and it's still relevant today, I say to myself, not just what the thing is that's the most urgent, but what's the thing that really does require my attention. And I try to do that first. Like sometimes I'm like, I just want that out of my inbox, like a notice from a bank or a form I have to fill out or a contract I have to review. But like, I try to really remind myself of what matters most. And then I do, you know, if you want to organize anything, like the best thing to do is just put it in your calendar. I try to put everything in a calendar. It doesn't matter if it's reviewing a contract or if I do have to look at something on social media or I need two days of strategy time, I calendar it. And that's that's the best thing I can say. I, I will say that email, and I said it before for many, many reasons, emails where productivity goes to die. Yeah, There's now something in our DNA and we have tools to counterbalance it, but there is in fact something in our DNA that we do every day. We feel this need to look at email all the time. We feel the need to respond to email in the order in which it comes in, even if there's 40 emails and three are for one project and four are for another. And like email doesn't really know that. You can kind of train it to do that. Maybe 2% of the population uses email clients that really focus on that. So if you can get the hell out of email, like if you're a salesperson, you are dependent on email. Like that's not changing. But if you're a CEO, get the fuck out of email. Email is where productivity goes to die. Nothing good happens on email. Nothing urgent happens on email unless it is a sale or a contract or a new client. So those would be my tips. Reduce the noise, focus on what matters most, you know, schedule what you can schedule and get the hell off email. Those are such great tips. Jennifer, thank you for sharing that. I feel like we could do another 15-minute segment on all of your (laughs) Maybe when this episode comes out, we'll do a live together and we'll talk more about it because I love all of these tips. And I'm going to take some of them because I get sucked into my email and I spend the weekend trying to catch up because I have all these emails that I haven't been able to get to. So going to spend some more time with you. Well, my final question for you, Jennifer, is what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh my God, it means getting inspired by and inspiring at scale, right? Like you guys are building an entrepreneur community at scale with really rich and tangible and juicy details, you know, to help women of all, you know, shapes and sizes in all verticals, in all places in the world get to what's next. So I think it means the opportunity to be inspired by that community, inspire that community and be part you know, of growing it for the bigger picture. So I'm really, really honored. I'm flattered to be on here. Super excited for you guys. And I look forward to learning more about how I can help. Well, I'm so glad you were able to share your incredible journey and story with our listeners. And thank you for all of these incredible tips that you shared. So we'll definitely be linking out to some of the tools and tips in our show notes below. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And of course, um, any potential customers who are interested in signing up for Vow, where should they do so? Yeah, so they can go to vow.app, V-O-W dot app so they can do that that's number one the other thing that they can do is reach out on social media vow network on linkedin on twitter on instagram as well on instagram and linkedin i am jennifer brisman as well same on twitter so they can connect with us whenever they want 
Thank you so much, Jennifer. You're welcome. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.